Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Maxime Bernier announced the launch of his People's Party. Says it'll be ready for next October's federal election. I had a chance to speak with Maxime Bernier. What do you think? Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe took on Justin Trudeau directly and challenged the Prime Minister in tweets about their meeting last week concerning environmental programs. This Thursday, the Laxqualam Nation, represented by Mayor John Helene, will address independent senators in Ottawa concerning First Nations, 35 of them, calling for Bill C-48 to be cancelled. That's the tanker moratorium bill and tying C-48 into C-69, another questionable piece of legislation. I spoke with Vancouver CKNW Program Director Larry Gifford about his podcast series, When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Listen to Larry Gifford. Bernie, thank you for taking the time. First of all, thank you for the invitation. I'm very pleased to be with you. Uh, what kind of response are you getting across Canada? Are you getting enough to really encourage you that between the now of the People's and Party has to be next summer, Canada joins that us you'll now be able to the create the kind of political entity and party that will be able to compete uh, and successfully compete in the federal election? I'm very pleased with the the response that we had since uh, uh, Friday, Friday morning, when I did that press conference. Uh, you know, we received a lot of email, a lot of calls, and people, uh, they want us to be successful. I think people are fed up with politicians, traditional politicians, who are saying something a day and the opposite the other day. So they want somebody that will tell the truth, and uh, that's what I want to do. That's what we want to do. So answering your question, it's a big challenge, I know it, but it's easier to build a party in 2018 than it was during the reform time because we have the social media and we are using the social media to build the, the organization on the ground and it's going very well. I hope that we'll be able to have our organization on the ground up and running before the end of this year. And after that, we will focus to uh, have candidates in every 338 uh, ridings. That's a big, uh, big ask for you. I don't think there's another politician, though, in Canada, and I tweeted this a few minutes ago. There's no other politician in Canada who could generate the kind of interest or would, who would be able to generate the kind of interest that you have. Now, what is your message, though, to Canadians? Why should they vote for you? You say you're the guy who's not going to be like everybody else. I tend to believe that. But it can't just be immigration and a free trader, although those are very important issues. Uh, if, when you're, if you're prime minister, how do you change this country to satisfy the people who will have voted for you? Yeah, first of all, the difference with us and the other uh, leaders, it is that we don't try to please special interest group and we are doing politics for for all Canadians, for, for the people. That's why we are, the name of our party is the People's Party of Canada. But Mr. Vernier, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, what does that mean, yeah. doing politics for all the people? What does that mean? Yeah, but I'll give you an example, like uh, the cartel of supply management. It is not normal, and it is a shame that I'm the only politician in Ottawa who speaks for the people. I'm speaking for Canadian consumers. You know, they're paying twice the price for poultry, milk, and eggs in this country. 
just to please uh, 19,000 uh, dairy producers uh, in this country. So that special interest group is very powerful with politicians, but not with us, not with me. Uh, I think we must uh, abolish that and with a okay. phase out between five and eight years. So, you know, having a policy like that, we can attract people from from the left who want to work for the poor and, and real conservative who believe in free markets. So that's an example. Okay, so now let me go. On, let me go. I'm I'm yeah. working with I'm working against the clock here, so I have to ask you some questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. The uh, the other issue, the one one issue where you've created a tremendous amount of national response and opinion from everyone across the spectrum is those six tweets of a few weeks ago where you dealt with immigration, where you where you challenged Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals' plan uh, of creating, uh, creating ghettos in this country. How would you address that? How does immigration change in a Maxime Bernier administration? But first of all, like I said during my leadership campaign, uh, everything that I said during my leadership campaign, it is a platform of our new party first. And the platform is based on four principles, individual freedom, personal responsibility, respect, fairness. So about the immigration, what we want, we want a little bit less immigrants, but more economic immigrants. We want to have a discussion about immigration in this country. It's always more and more and more. That Our immigration policy has been a success for the last 50 years. People are coming to Canada because of our shared values. And what I'm asking, we must promote what unites us, not what divides us. So that's important. Let's have that discussion. Uh, we are having that discussion right now in Quebec at the provincial election. Uh, we have to be open we, to immigration. We, have to be sh- we want to be sure that the people who's coming here, they will be able to have a job, they will be able to integrate our society. So I think that's important. I want our country to be like that in 20 years from now. I don't want us to have some challenges that some European country are having. If we don't want that, we need to question our immigration policy right now. And that's what I want to do. I want to open open that debate. So Canadian values, you talk about Canadian values. Uh, Justin Trudeau seems to feel, and I'm paraphrasing here, that this is not a country where there is a common denominator, where we're all sort of going for the same objective. If I, uh, if I hope I'm not misinterpreting what Mr. Trudeau said, but you know better than I, although we've talked about it a lot. Is Trudeau just on the wrong path? I think, yes. You know, he said that he doesn't believe in a nation state. He said, you know, we're in a supranational uh, uh, country, and that's great to have it people coming from every country in the world, but they're coming here to share our shared values, respect for the rule of law, respect and tolerance, respect of our diversity, uh, equality between uh, between men and women. So that's our shared values. But what Justin Trudeau is saying is, you know, uh, nothing, we, we're not special as Canadians. We know we are, we are, we are not Canadian. We are maybe a world citizen. And I think we are Canadian. We, are, we have a different culture, different values than other countries, and we must be proud of that. Yeah, I so agree with you. That's a, that's a big difference with uh, myself and the Prime Minister. No, I absolutely agree with you. There's a, there are Canadian values, and we have a shared experience, and we go forward together or we're going to have problems. Now, the CPC, Cana- the Conservative Party of Canada, you were a member of that party for so many years. You are Foreign Minister under Stephen Harper. You're identified yes. as a strong Conservative and a, a member of the Conservative Party of Canada. No longer, of course, but you were. So now yes. I get CPC supporters telling me 
Maxime Bernier is splitting the vote on the right and will hand the next win to Trudeau. And they say to me that you're... Now, you have a lot of supporters, too, by the way, but the ones who are challenging you are saying you're doing it out of spite. You did say the CPC, the Conservative Party, is morally corrupt, and you've challenged Mr. Scheer as well. What do you say to the Conservatives who are going to vote Conservative, but think you're just trying to drag the party down for your own ego's purposes? First of all, I cannot uh, devise the right when there's no right in this country right now. Look at Andrew Scheer and Justin, uh, Justin, Chrétien, uh, Justin Trudeau, sorry, and it's the same kind of policy. So, first of all, second, our party wants to build a big coalition, not only with conservative, and I hope I will have a lot of conservative voters that will come on our side, and it's going very well. We have a lot of them right now, but also people who don't vote. You know, there's, uh, there's 30% of the population each uh, election at the federal level who they don't think for them it's important to go and vote because they don't believe in politicians. They don't trust politicians anymore. So, you know, I said, you know, for me, politically correctness, it is finished. I'm saying what it, I think is good for this country. If you like it, come with us in our party. If you don't like it, just don't vote for us. But I think we can have these people. We can have also the real fiscal liberal that voted for Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin with a balanced budget and lower taxes. They don't have that with the Trudeau government right now. We are looking also for some NDP that want to get rid, rid of uh, corporate welfare. Uh, they don't like that when the government is giving money to big corporations. Uh, I want to abolish that and use that money to lower taxes to every single entrepreneur. Mm. So we will have a coalition, but I think the base of our coalition will be based on the, the real conservative principle, individual freedom, personal responsibility, a smaller government. And I think what people appreciate is for us, speaking about ending corporate welfare or smaller government, it is not a slogan. It is a reality. We back that with real reform, real, real policy. And for us, there's nothing, there's no taboo subject. We, we need to speak about the challenges that we're having in this country, and that's what we want to do. All right. Now, you had a lot of support in the Conservative Party when you were running for leader. You almost beat Andrews here. It was very close. And there are questions about, you know, who, you know, about who supported whom and for what reason. Now, so you had a lot of support. I would imagine there are still members of the Conservative Party who like you, who support you. So the question is, is anybody in that conservative caucus, I'm going to say this slowly, prepared, or do you think they might be prepared to say, I'm going to cross and join Maxime Bernier? Maybe that can happen down the road when they will see that our party is very popular and if they decided to fight for real conservative values based on freedom. But uh, I can tell you that I didn't call anybody. I, I didn't speak with my former colleagues. Uh, I don't want them to put them in a, in, a, in a difficult position. But also, you must remember, I just had six members of parliament who supported me during the leadership, and there's 98 97 uh, conservative members of parliament. So I didn't have the support of the caucus during my leadership, but I had a lot of support from the grassroots and the, the conservative Yeah, but, what you, tell, but what, you tell me, what you tell me is that there are people who are following the path of least resistance, and the path of least resistance is to just follow the party mandate until there's an option. They won't lead the option, but they'll join the option. This is what I'm getting at. 
Are there people within that caucus who are not happy with what's going on who may have contacted you? You didn't contact them. Has, has anyone contacted you? No, 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 no. Okay. You know, I, I have to prove, I have to prove to everybody that this party, it's serious and we will be able to have candidates in every riding. Yep. We have, we have uh, goals to achieve and uh, raise money, having riding association, being ready on the ground, ground, and we're doing that right now. When they will see that, you know, we are able to build that because of the use of social media and, and the enthusiasm that, that people are, you know, I didn't, I didn't, uh, do anything and in British Columbia we had people who get together and speak about our principle and want to uh, be part of the, the the foundation of that party so that's helping and we're going to work hard for being sure that we'll be ready for the election and I think at the end I hope that some of them they, 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 they will be welcome if they decide to, to come with us okay yeah. so so we're reaching we're reaching a lot of people across this country right now um, Canadians are very very interested in what you have to say what is most disturbing to you about how politics is done in Canada today? Just tell me what troubles you. We've had a big debate over the last couple of days about Doug Ford using the notwithstanding clause in the province of Ontario. I see the notwithstanding clause as another tool that is there and available to politically elected leaders to exercise to overrule um, activist judges. But is that something that, that's caught on your radar? But what is it that troubles you most about the way things are done now? Well, first of all, it's the politician they don't want to debate the real challenge that we are having in this country, like immigration, like the equalization formula. You know, it's unfair for the West. It's unfair for my own province in Quebec. They receive a lot of money from equalization, and but they, they don't have any incentive to develop their uh, natural resources. So nobody wants to speak about that. We will speak about it, and I'm doing that. Let's have a formula that would be fair for everybody, less generous. So that's things that are important for this country. Considering uh, uh, Premier Ford, you're right. It's, uh, if he wants to use the, that clause, maybe that, that would be his decision, and he would be responsible in from his own citizens. So it's not a debate that I will do because... Uh, I want to respect provincial jurisdiction. I don't want to interfere in provincial jurisdiction. I think the federal government is doing that too much, and that can cause problems at the end. Let's respect the Constitution, and Mr. Ford, if you want to use it, he'll be responsible for it. Okay, so then here's my question to you about notwithstanding clause. If you're the Prime Minister of Canada, and you and your government have said it's in the national interest for the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension to be completed. You've made that statement. You've made the decision. You've paid $4.7 billion to buy the damn thing. Uh, would you, if a court were to say, as, as was said, ruled, that you can't go forward because more consultations are required? You know what, you know what was said. Would you, as the prime minister, say, no, we've made the decision we informed you of the decision. We're satisfied that we did what we were supposed to do, so I'll use the notwithstanding clause, and the construction of the pipeline continues. Would you have done that? No, because we cannot use that clause in that, in that situation. Uh, a lot of experts are saying it, it would be difficult to use that clause. But we are there right now because of the mess that the government Trudeau did in this file. So what we must do, 
just a, a, a little consultation, a real consultation, couple of months, and, and approve that. But uh, the, the Trudeau government, they raised the expectation when they, they were saying we need a social license. What's that, a social, social license? You know, we have property rights in Canada, so everything must be based on property rights. And so the, the Trudeau government, the way they manage all that, mm-hmm. it's a failure. So what, what we must do, if I'm, if I'm in government in a couple of months from now, we will, first of all, there's a bill, C-69, and they put more, more barriers for having a, a very, efficient, uh, uh, um, very efficient process to approve big projects like that. We will f- first get rid of that bill and having a bill that will have steps that are uh, in line with the Constitution, but being sure that at the end, you know, we respect property rights. That's okay. the most important. Mr. Bernier, I thank you for the time. It's uh, good talking to you. I hope you'll come back. I, I hope I'll have an invitation soon. I really appreciate it. Thank okay. you very much for this opportunity. All right. All the best to you. Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party. But here's my conversation with... Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. We touched on, we talked about uh, he and Trudeau and a few other things as well. Have a listen. Premier Moe, thank you very much for the time. And uh, I've been reading your tweets. What happened between you and the Prime Minister? Well, we had a meeting. Uh, we had a meeting where, uh, and, and I was pleased, let me just, uh, you know, foreshadow with that. I was pleased to have the opportunity to sit with down with the Prime Minister and and to, uh, you know, offer some consultation or some advice from, from the perspective of the province of Saskatchewan on on his uh, Western Canadian growth strategy. Uh, you know, and we had suggested that a good starting point uh, to, to ensure that we are able to grow our economy, uh, not just in Saskatchewan, but in Western Canada, um, and how the federal government could... Uh, could uh, uh, assist with that would be to not uh, not threaten and not talk about in, uh, implementing their carbon backstop on our industries uh, here in Western Canada, uh, just simply due to the investment that it'll drive out of Saskatchewan, Alberta, and other Western Canadian, uh, other was, uh, our Western Canadian industries, and, and drive it to other areas of the world that aren't going to have that ineffective tax that just simply. You know, it does not work. It does not uh, reduce emissions. I also asked them to repeal B- Bill C-69. Uh, Bill C-69 is is not a good piece of legislation for for uh, either the environment or industries in, in Canada. It's not a good piece of legislation for the economy of Canada. Is it effectively? Is going to inhibit any any further nation-building projects, such as as uh, as uh, Energy East, such as uh, other other projects that will employ and benefit uh, not just people in the province of Saskatchewan, but by via the, uh, the 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 revenue sharing programs we have, benefit all Canadians. So I'd ask uh, a good place to start if we want to talk about the growth of the Western Canadian economy would be to repeal the carbon tax and repeal Bill C69. Uh, he disagreed. Now. Would you say, and I was looking at another one of your tweets, would you say that Western Canada is at a crossroads now? We most certainly are. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I had used the, the term that the, the relationship between the province of Saskatchewan and our, our current federal government, our prime minister, has been frosty uh, at times. I think that's been evident. But we are, I think, at a fork in the road with our relationship, and I think the ball is in the prime minister's court, and he has the opportunity now, if he truly uh, does want to consult with provinces, um, which they, the, he claims he does, um, he, sh- he should take the advice of, of people like myself on behalf of the people of this province, repeal the carbon tax, repeal Bill C-69, consult with us on how we can move forward, except, for example, our plan of prairie resilience that has real, real results uh, in, in, uh, in addressing climate change. Um, 
relative to Catherine McKenna's plan that actually has no results in, in addressing cli- climate change outside of moving emissions to other areas of the world. And along with those will go the jobs that we, we currently have in our nation and potentially could have into the future. Um, but to work with provinces and work with leaders of provinces like myself, uh, to date we have not seen that. Premier, if there's no response, no positive response by the Prime Minister to your suggestions to him, and I'd I can't see him agreeing with repealing the carbon tax or C-69. What happens then? And he seems to be convinced that the Saskatchewan uh, Prairie Initiative uh, and your climate initiative is really not up to snuff. So what happens well, then? He, he, he will, over the course of the next year, uh, uh, the federal government, the prime minister, will have a decision to make with respect to, uh, first of all, carbon taxation. Are they going to implement a carbon tax on, on not just Saskatchewan, who could, because we will not. Uh, we, will, we will move forward with our plan of prairie resilience in light of the, the federal government staying out of this jurisdiction. But they will also have to consider implementing that same tax on the people of Ontario, uh, the four Atlantic provinces that did not measure up to the, Cana- to the Canadian backstop. Uh, looks like Alberta is out, so they'll have to consider implementing uh, that carbon tax on on uh, Rachel Notley's province of Alberta at at current, as well as Manitoba uh, does not measure up or will not measure up very shortly to the the federal carbon backstop as well. So, the challenge in the decision that the federal government, the prime minister, have is: Are they going to implement their ineffective carbon tax um, on the families uh, in most of the nation of Canada? That'll be a decision they'll have to make. And the Prairie Resilience Program works and would be very productive for Saskatchewan, for Alberta, for the Western provinces. It's a plan that was uh, uh, that I worked on as Environment Minister. Dun- uh, Minister Duncan has uh, worked very hard on uh, with industries across across the province. It's a plan that's supported by our industries here in Saskatchewan. It's a plan that has uh, not only real emissions uh, reductions, but an opportunity to to a identify and recognize uh, the sequestration opportunities that we have, which again affect uh, carbon content in our atmosphere, and B, uh, recognizes the opportunity through the the Paris Accord to export that innovation around the world and address climate change far beyond Saskatchewan's borders uh, to address uh, what is a global challenge in a a very global way, and that's by sharing innovation that we have in our industries. So it's a plan with real results, unlike the federal plan, unlike Catherine McKenna's plan that's been put forward, which has no targets, no results, and, and no demonstrated success in any other area of the world. Premier, I don't want to overplay a point, but uh, let me raise this. In April of this year, you questioned British Columbia getting in the way of Trans Mountain uh, extension, the pipeline extension, and you suggested that if one province could do that, the question then has to be is do we have a nation? As I And, and we spoke about, you and I spoke about that about three weeks ago as well. As I hear you express your concerns now, I hear the echo of do we have a nation? The, and, and the question uh, holds true on on many fronts. Uh, we we do have a nation, and I truly uh, uh, do think we do, and I do hope we do um, into the future. The the fact of the matter is is there is a national interest, and the TMX pipeline is a prime example of this, where it's supported by the vast majority of Canadians. It's supported uh, by the industry. We need to build it right. Yes, we do, and we need to consult with all of those along the way. But consult consultation does not always mean that we are going to have consensus with absolutely everybody, everyone along the way on every project that we do, but we do have to act in the national interest. This project is in the national interest, been identified by the Prime Minister, myself and others as being uh, just that. And at some point in time, 
Uh, you do need to act, and we need to build this pipeline so that we can actually start to achieve the, the benefits of it and achieve the economic benefits of it uh, in our province. We're, we're, we continue to take over a $2 billion hit in our energy industry just in Saskatchewan due to the price differential of having only one customer. This is pipeline starts to change that, starts to change the wealth trajectory for all Canadians. Well, nothing's happened on the pipeline front since the court made its decision. Prime Minister hasn't taken any concrete action. He says it's going to move for, forward in the right way. Well, the right way for this Prime Minister to do the correct thing for this nation be to at least consider the notwithstanding clause to overrule that court. Yeah, and I, I don't know uh, if, if there's an opportunity for that or, or, or not in this case. I, I, I don't think there is. I would say um, the way to move forward on this and move quickly, and I'd say they should launch an appeal um, um, immediately, um, but that would take too long as well for this project. So what I, what I would say is they should, they should check the boxes of the court very quickly. Um, perform a con- uh, an immediate uh, an emergency consultation uh, process, whether that's uh, in the province of British Columbia or, or in Ottawa. Bring people in and uh, have them uh, express their concerns or their support for this project in a two- or three-week period. Take the results of that consultation process and, uh, and call Parliament together, pass legislation reaffirming their environmental, uh, their environmental jurisdiction in this area, and start construction of this project that will benefit all Canadians. Premier, one more question, uh, the notwithstanding clause. Let me just go back to that. We have uh, the Ontario government of Doug Ford reaching for the notwithstanding clause concerning the numbers of councillors in the city of Toronto. It's being described by some people as the nuclear option when, in fact, it really is another tool in the toolbox of uh, of political leaders to deal with activist courts. Uh, But you tell me that the notwithstanding clause is part of a piece of... Saskatchewan legislation, a lot of people think of Robert Barassa's use of the notwithstanding clause was the only time it's been done in Canada. That is not the case. You know, we've used it a couple times in our province under different administrations. Uh, it was used a number of years ago, and uh, we used it uh, as recent as the last couple of years with respect to um, a court ruling on, on uh, funding in our education system and the, uh, the division of funding between uh, a Catholic and uh, our public education system. So we had utilized the notwithstanding clause uh, in, in a piece of legislation that we passed uh, to ensure that we weren't going to upset uh, the, the, uh, the equilibrium that we currently have. Now we continue to work with our, our partners in that sector to a better, uh, a, you know, to a resolution. But in the interim, you cannot just all of a sudden, um, with one court decision, upset the, the equilibrium that we have between our our uh, Catholic school system and our public school system uh, overnight. So we've utilized it twice in this province. It's uh, and it's currently um, um, we have it uh, attached to a piece of legislation as well in Saskatchewan. So it's been used a number of times. I think Quebec used it, attached it to virtually every piece of legislation for a few years to more so to I think display a point. But it is an important piece. I, I think of uh, it's an important piece of our constitutional our, our constitutional authority as provinces to ensure that we. The elected people can continue to represent the people that put us uh, in, in, in the places that we, we currently sit. All right, I do have one more question. Uh, we're recording sure. this on Friday morning. You're just about to head off to China. Uh, what, uh, what is Saskatchewan's involvement with, uh, with China, and uh, how's, your, how's the Saskatchewan economy performing? 
The Saskatchewan economy has had some headwinds recently, and uh, and and we've been very engaged as well. And this again, uh, you know, Pete speaks to you know our opposition to additional headwinds that that uh, you know aren't necessary and actually are ineffective, such as carbon taxation and whatnot. But we need to in, in the the economy in Saskatchewan is dependent on three things. The three T's I like to say is first is trade. Uh, we need trade agreements uh, with most notably the United States are our largest trading partner. China, our second largest trading partner, $3.5 billion worth of product uh, we sent to China last year. Um, we need transportation opportunities to get those products to market. Pipelines like TMX, like Energy East, like our rail lines to get our agricultural and fertilizer products to market. And last but not least, we need a, we need a tax and regulatory environment here in our province that allows us to compete with our, with our competitors all around the world, wherever they may be. So the three T's, trade, transport, tax, and that's what we're going to uh, China on is to work on those export markets to ensure that we can preserve the markets that we already had, do have and, uh, and also uh, look for the opportunity to open up new markets as well as to engage on uh, some some uh, um, measures of sustainability, if you will. We are, we are speaking uh, with, uh, with a number of groups with respect to carbon capture and storage, for example. Uh, we'll be engaging on a uranium file in China as well, for example. So there is uh, um, far greater opportunities than, than just traditionally shipping our potash and our agricultural products uh, to, to the country of China, and we're hoping to explore and expand some of those opportunities in our visit here, and we leave to, uh, Saturday morning. Premier Moe, thank you very much for the time. Always good speaking with you. Thanks so much, Roy. Appreciate it. There's the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, as I spoke with him on Friday morning. That uh, Bill C-69 is a terrible piece of legislation. Absolutely terrible. You, you might find the uh, the exchange, the Twitter exchange, between Premier Moe and Trudeau interesting. Trudeau tweeted, I sat down with Premier Moe in Saskatchewan today talk about the work we're doing to create more jobs and opportunities and diversity and diversify our trade with new markets around the world to better build the future for the people in Saskatchewan. Premier Moore replied, with all due respect, Prime Minister, in our meeting, I once again voiced the concerns on behalf of Saskatchewan families, businesses, and industries that a forced federal carbon tax and Bill C-69 need to be repealed and the Trans Mountain Pipeline needs to be built. Uh, John Helene is the mayor of the Lux Kualam First Nation in B.C., and he's also bringing a letter from the Chief's Council about the Energy Spirit Corridor, which um, supports the construction of the Energy Spirit Corridor Pipeline. And we've spoken with uh, Mayor Helene's brother Calvin about that on a number of occasions, Calvin Helene being the chairman and the CEO of that effort. Mayor Helene, good to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time. Good to talk to you, Roy. Good afternoon. Well, good afternoon. What are you uh, What are you going to say to the? And I'll, I'll just start with a general question. What are you going to say to independent senators this coming Thursday in Ottawa? Let's begin with why. Well, I'm going to explain to them who we are. We're one of the biggest uh, First Nations on the coast in northern BC, and uh, with the federal government imposing a tanker ban on uh, our waters, our traditional territory, without consulting with us and and seeing. The result of uh, lack of consultation with the TMX project that uh, not bode well for them. Yeah. Bill C-48, the Oil Tanker Moratorium Act, bans tankers carrying more than 12,500 metric tons of crude oil or persistent oilless cargo 
from stopping unloading oil at all ports and marine installations along the British Columbia northern coast from the northern tip of Vancouver Island to the Alaska border. They may also not load oil if it were to mean the tanker would carry more than 12,500 metric tons. And you want to see C-48 canceled? Please talk to us about that. And it covers a massive area, doesn't it? It does. It covers uh, our whole traditional territory from the Alaska border south to 100 to 150 kilometers uh, below our community. So what that, in effect, does is not allow us to try and diversify our economy. We have the biggest uh, gillnet fishing fleet on on the west coast of B.C., and our fishermen can't make a living uh, uh, fishing salmon in our traditional territory anymore. So it's important that we look at every opportunity as it comes along and uh, have the best information go out to our membership and, and let them decide what they would support and not support and I'd just like to mention that the federal government did a, a study years ago on uh, the ports on the west coast of uh, of uh, North America, and uh, the top port by far was Grassy Point, which is uh, right across from my community in Lock Lambs. Yeah, and that, that's the Supreme Court decision, right? No, no, that was just a study done by study. the federal government. Okay. Now, yeah. let me just ask you about the importance of moving forward with this particular effort and and project. What impact will it have on the First Nations communities, 35 of them, right, who are involved in this corridor? Well, I was uh, part of uh, the Eagle Spirit uh, organization from the beginning and up until the election uh, in November 2015 where we went into all those communities and uh, proposed uh, a project uh, that was different than, at the time, Enbridge. And and the reason we got involved was to try and address the concerns around the environment that uh, we didn't think were uh, rigid enough at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But life life in in the communities is such uh, that it's necessary to provide economic opportunity and take advantage of economic opportunity when it exists to improve the life and to improve the prospects of living what most people in this country would consider to be, you know, a life that, that, that I, I, I'll use the word entitled to, that you're entitled to a good life. And for many First Nations people, life without economic opportunity just means difficulty. It does, and all those little communities that we've gone through uh, are considered uh, living in third-world conditions in a country as, as rich as Canada. Yeah. And you look at the Chilcolton case uh, that was won a couple of years ago, uh, a result of that uh, decision was that uh, First Nations should be allowed to make a decent living in their traditional territories. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's ridiculous and it's dangerous to think otherwise. So you're going to go to the, you're going to speak to the independent senators and you want C48 uh, gotten rid of to be re- re- repealed, removed, and stop going forward with it. But Bill C69 is also part of the discussion. Explain to us how the two intersect. Well, I think they're they're putting they put the cart before the horse and uh, they're saying now they want to consult with First Nations on uh, C69. And they've already imposed uh, a ban on us in our traditional territory. So uh, 
the lack of consultation around uh, Great Bear Rainforest and uh, the tanker ban that they're imposing uh, just goes against everything that they, they say they want to do with First Nations. You're presenting a letter as well from the Chief's Council, which I've had a chance to see, which makes the case for your First Nations communities creating a best-in-class environmental model for the development of ESE and delivering the greenest crude oil or crude in the world. So what is the spirit of the letter from the Chief's Council? Isn't it, I mean, it's economic independence and prosperity of First Nations, which the federal government professes as a priority. Well, they keep professing it, and that would be presented by Calvin Hlein, who's president of ESE, and I, I backed away from ESE since my position as the mayor of Loch Lamb, so he, he's uh, involved with that proposal, and I'm uh, more or less uh, on the sidelines. Yeah, I'm concerned I, about the coast. And on that, on, on, yeah. So how, do you have assurance that the independent senators will be there in numbers to uh, to hear you? Well, you you never say uh, for sure what's going to happen. It's politics, but uh, I'm assured that uh, we'd have a good turnout. Yeah, the government tells everyone they're consulting and accommodating First Nations. They they they, they continually insist on that. Your experience is is obviously not that. Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, what is meaningful consultation? I mean, it's not imposing uh, moratoriums and, and great bear rainforests on you, for sure. Um, what is, what, what's the minimum? I have to ask you this. What's the minimum expectation that, that you have that the senators supporting? Because you need, this, you need these senators on side to, to take care of the objections to C-48 and C-69, they're critical to, to this effort, are they not? Well, I, uh, it's in the Senate right now, so any support that we get from them is, is a very important. Uh, failing support uh, and it going through Senate, uh, we have to go through the court system, and that's the last place I want to be. So, yeah. you know, it, 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 if Trudeau is true to his word and wants us to have uh, self-sufficiency in our communities, uh, we should be able to look at any opportunity that presents itself and get that information to our membership and let them decide. And you have that opportunity. It's right there in front of you. And and now the feds are standing in the way of, of you getting that done. And it would be beneficial to everybody in Canada. It would. I mean, uh, getting your your resources to international markets and, and where we're where, where we are situated on the coast is a lot closer to the Asian markets than uh, somewhere in Vancouver Harbor or Burnaby or anywhere else. Uh, John, the federal government does continually insist that it's had many meetings with First Nations and uh, that it's doing what it's supposed to do. And uh, what, what do you say in response to that? Let me, can we get John up, please? I'm having trouble with this thing. Go ahead, John. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. I'm sorry. Okay. We had a bit of trouble with, the, with our computer. Okay. Yeah, no, I've had plenty of meetings with uh, different ministers in the past, and most of them were re regarding an LNG project that was going to proceed in our traditional territory. As far as I can recall, I've had uh, a couple of meetings with Minister Garneau, 
on different issues, and one of them was uh, right after the election that they said uh, they wanted to impose the ban on us, and it, it was just more or less them telling us what they were going to do, and uh, we were object- objecting right from the beginning. So, no, it, it has to be meaningful consultation and uh, has to be uh, uh, everybody understanding what's being proposed, and, and I should go to my membership and, and find out what they think about it. Mm-hmm. How did Bill C-48, how is it impacting on, uh, on, on, your, on, on your territory, on your, on your community? Well, it cuts off opportunities that we might otherwise uh, have an ability to to see whether community members want to accept it, whether it's oil and or whatever that uh, product is. So, and no, no real consultation with the federal government about that. Oh, none, none whatsoever. Yeah. They, they though, they will point to other First Nations and British Columbia who will agree with C forty eight. So if they say that to you, when they say that to you, what do you say to them? Well, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but I don't go to Haida Gwaii or any other First Nation and tell them what they can and cannot do in their traditional territory. So I expect the same respect for us in our, our territory. And without C-48, if, if it's repealed, and if C-69 is repealed, as it should be, uh, and the opportunity then exists to move forward. I know you can't talk about the about the uh, Energy East pipeline specifically now that you're the mayor. But if C48 disappears, C69 disappears, the opportunity arises for the pipeline to be built. Um, you have 34 of 35 communities going uh, supporting it. Maybe 35 of 35 now. The the change in in life and the change in opportunity and the opportunity to expand and and improve life will be just exponential for you oh it would, would be uh, very very important for us you know with the limited funds we get from the federal government around education uh, health uh, houses in the community all, all those issues we have to deal with on a daily basis is that the bottom line is we need uh, resources, we need funds, we need uh, to do a good job for our membership, and, and we don't have the proper funding in place for that. Yeah, and you want to do it on your own. Well, it would be uh, exciting for us to create our own uh, resources and, and do what we think is right for our membership. Yeah, and again, it would also, uh, I don't want to use the word spill when I talk about uh, this kind of opportunity, but it would spill over into the rest of the country. The rest of the country would benefit and profit from from this this reality. Um, what What is your message to, to the Prime Minister? What specifically would you say to Mr. Trudeau? Well, I, I said to, it, to the Prime Minister when he was in Prince Rupert recently that uh, we disagree with the uh, lack of consultation and... Uh, we want to sit down and, and talk about it and uh, be meaningfully consulted. Yeah. It hasn't happened. Well, I, uh, I wish you all the very best, and uh, you deserve at least that, the consultation. You deserve to be listened to. And as you say, if the tanker ban is approved by some First Nations, once it gets into your territory, your traditional territory, which is a huge amount of territory from northern Vancouver Island all the way to, to Alaska, you should have uh, proper input, and you're not get, you haven't had that opportunity. 
So no, we haven't, and and that should go to all all our members, not just uh, me as the leader. So yeah, it sounds like there's an agenda at play, Mr. Mayor. Yes. It sure does. I wish you all the best on Thursday. Thanks so very much for joining us today. Okay, thank you, Roy. Take good care. Mayor John Helene, um, joining us from British Columbia, from the Lakshwalam's First Nation. I've uh, known the name of Larry Gifford for uh, a couple of years. I, I knew that he was a very successful program director, radio program director in the United States. And then I, uh, I found out that he had joined Chorus Radio and become the program director, senior program director at CKNW Radio in Vancouver. Our, uh, it's really uh, one of the heritage radio stations in this country. And, uh, so, and I've communicated with Larry on a few occasions by way of email. And then most recently, I became aware of what Larry is living with. And I became aware, as others have, through his very courageous series of podcasts that are continuing and developing, when life gives you Parkinson's, and I just want to read a line, the first line from a story on Larry. In August 2017, my wife celebrated her birthday. My son got a new backpack for school. We bought a new barbecue for the backyard, and I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. That just stops you right in your tracks. Larry, thank you very much for two things, uh, or several things, um, most specifically, for sharing your story with people not only in Canada, but it'll go global, and for helping people who in difficult times need a voice and somebody to look to that is maybe goes beyond the medical profession. You're doing a, a tremendous service, and uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Roy. I really appreciate it. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on your show. So you had, if I can go back to, as I've been reading your story and listening to your story, you had individual symptoms. What were they, and how did you explain them to yourself? Well, so probably nine years ago now, I uh, started to have a little hitch in my walk. It was I, I had a draggy foot, a clompy foot. And so um, my wife and I, would, we'd noticed, like, we tried to take uh, quiet hikes through the through the woods and my foot would be clomp, 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 and we'd be able to look at it like, what's going on? Uh, and we, we just thought I was, you know, out of shape or overweight. And uh, I thought maybe my shoes were too heavy. So I, I started buying lighter shoes, and that didn't help. So I bought a lighter pair of shoes, and that didn't help. And so I bought a lighter pair of shoes, and I realized <laughs> after a while, it's probably not the shoes. Um, along the way, uh, over the course of uh, probably the next eight years, uh, I uh, lost my sense of smell at some point, which I've come to find out is a, a telltale sign of Parkinson's. Um, and um, I, I, I lost my sense of space. So I would bump into door frames or desks or, uh, you know, just I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have the right balance. Um, you know, I lost my coordination. I was, I, I, my, my family likes to throw the Frisbee outside. And I stopped being able to control where the Frisbee went, and I couldn't figure out why. Um, and, um, and and then the tremor came in my right arm, and I was, I was reaching over the couch to have my uh, son a glass of water. And the water started uh, flying out of the glass because my hand was trembling so badly, my arm was. And he, he looked at me and he said, Dad, why, why is your hand shaking? And I said, Son, I don't know. 
And is that the point you decided it's time to investigate? That was it. That was uh, January of 2017. Went to my uh, doctor, and uh, she said, I don't want to alarm you, uh, but I'm going to set up a consult with a uh, MS specialist. Um, and so I went to a neurologist to, to get tested for MS. And he's like, well, the good news is you don't have MS, but I think you have Parkinson's. And so then they had to set up another neurologist appointment so they could uh, test me uh, specifically for Parkinson's. And that guy was like, yeah, you've got a lot of Parkinsonisms. Did you have any idea what Parkinson's was, but you know, beyond the celebrity stories and the the general information we all have, like Muhammad Ali, and uh, no, did... no, I I didn't have a clue. I yeah. mean, you know, you say Parkinson's, and, and instantly in your brain you see Muhammad Ali and the torch for the Olympics, and you see Michael J. Fox, right. and you're like, so I've got the Michael J. Fox disease. Now what? What, what? What's that mean? And they they told you what? What is Parkinson's? Specifically, I know it's a neurodegenerative disease, but w- what does it do? What, what's what's going on in your brain that is causing well, you to have these issues? Yeah, it's a move. It's a movement disorder as well. So uh, what what happens is by the time you're diagnosed, you've lost probably eighty percent of your dopamine-producing brain cells, and dopamine is the chemical that's needed to initiate movement. So if I'm going to hand a glass of water to somebody, if I'm going to walk, if I'm going to urinate, if I'm going to swallow, if I'm going to do anything, uh, to start that movement, you need dopamine. Um, and so, uh, so now I've got you know, just a few, <laughs> 20% or less of, of those producing cells left. So mm-hmm. now they, they give me um, you know uh, drugs now that help you know, manufacture dopamine in a sort of more artificial way. And, uh, and it's called uh, levodopa carbidopa, and it's the gold standard of, of drugs. It's what Michael J. Fox takes. And in fact, it's the drug that Michael J. Fox takes um, that has caused him to move the way he is. The, the, the big side effect for levodopa carbidopa over time is it gives you that rollicking, rolling motion uh, that people associate with Parkinson's, but that's actually called dyskinesia. It's a reaction to the medication for Parkinson's. What's uh, what's life holding in store for you going forward, Larry? Well, um, it's a good question. Uh, there's, there's, if you've met one person with Parkinson's, you've met one person with Parkinson's. Every case is different. So they, there, there's no, hey, in four years this is going to happen, and in 10 years this is going to happen. Everybody's different. Everybody's symptoms are different. Some people don't even get tremors. Um, so we try not to think about what's what the future holds. We try to live in each moment and appreciate each day and, um, and be here right now. Yeah. Uh, I, I think anyone who's been who's dealt with a, or is dealing with a serious health issue, you, you recognize that fact. You get up in the morning, you wake up in the morning, one of the first thoughts is, oh, yeah, that's right. I have this. And and then you get on with your day. You do the best you can with, with every day that's placed in front of you. 10 million people have Parkinson's disease, uh, Larry, globally. 25 a day. Is it 25 a day in Canada who are, who are diagnosed? Yeah. And, you know, the interesting stat about that, uh, Roy, is, you know, 15 years ago, half as many people had Parkinson's. And in 15 more years, that, that 10 million number is going to double. 
so there are researchers that are now saying this is becoming a global pandemic. And one of the reasons I'm telling my story is because they say if people with Parkinson's don't start sharing their stories before the disease actually physically steals your voice, if we don't start telling our stories, there's no way we will raise enough money to do enough research to find cures. That's so, a, that's, and you're facing, uh, you're facing the possibility of, of losing your voice going forward. Well, it's certainly one of the, uh, one of the symptoms that uh, happens where you get a really soft, raspy voice, you know, right. may not lose it completely, but I've, I've, you know, that was one of the signs when I was doing on-air work. I, I realized over the course of time I, I was losing my ability to have a sustained, strong voice on the radio, and I, I, it was very disconcerting. Uh, and I later found out it was part of, partly because of my Parkinson's. How, how, does your, how, do you, how does a family deal with this? I'm sorry, I'm having difficulty asking you questions because I, I admire you so much for what you're doing, and I don't want this to be happening to you. Um, <laughs> How does you, that... we're, in that, we're in the same boat there, <laughs> which it wasn't either. <laughs> I used to be scared of program directors. Um, <laughs> how does it affect your family life? What happened? What did you, how did you deal with it? How do your wife and your son and you deal with it? Well, we deal with it every day. I mean, it's, um, it's yeah. a lot of little things. It's, um, you know, today I took my son bowling and I, you know, I can't can't bowl well with my right hand anymore, so I learned to bowl with my left hand. And um, you know, he used to be able to. We used to be able to roughhouse a lot. Well, he, if he bumps into me too hard, I, I'm falling over because my balance isn't as good as it used to be. So every kid's you know, dream knock his dad over. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, you know, I don't drive uh, very much at all anymore. Uh, my wife does all the driving, and I do uh, uh, take a lot of public transportation and. I, you know, I've, I used to drive all the time. I, we used to have, a, we used to be a two-car family. So maybe Parkinson's is helping the environment. I don't know. Hmm. Um, so it's a lot of little things, really. Uh, we, we're trying to keep, but we try to laugh a lot. You know, if I break a glass or drop something or trip over something, you know, it's, you know, all, if you don't laugh, you, you'll just end up crying. And, yeah. You know, what fun's that? Zero, absolutely zero. So. Uh, I, how do you? Uh, what happens now medically? You you don't you're not going to treatment sessions. You're going to counseling sessions, correct? I do. Uh, well, I have counsel, so I go to support group. I have a personal counselor. Uh, I have a physiotherapist. Uh, I have a neurologist that I see every six months. Um, so uh, the, you you build this team of people. You have a massage therapist. You have, you know, over the course of time, you, you sort of collect this group of people that are that are. They're trying to make you feel good. They're trying to make you feel better, both mentally and physically. And uh, they they can't reverse anything, uh, but what they can do is make you uh, more functional. And uh, like my physiotherapist is t- trying to retrain my brain so I can walk with a smoother gait. And that's exciting for me. Yeah, uh, are they making advancements on on the Parkinson's front medically? Well, yeah, sure. You know, there's deep brain stimulation that uh, once it gets to a certain point that uh, uh, some people are, are using to great success. Um, there, there's, you know, there's other medications, too. I was on a, a medication um, early uh, in, in after I was diagnosed uh, that actually gave me uh, hallucinations. So I'd be at work and I'd see dogs running down the hall or, you know, spiders on the wall. So they're not perfect, uh, but they're trying a lot of new stuff. Um, 
And, uh, you know, the Michael J. Fox Foundation and the Parkinson's Canada and Parkinson's societies across Canada, they're all doing tremendous job of raising money for research, but we still need a lot more. You do find out, do you not, when, when there's something that's a really traumatic health experience, that there are wonderful people out there who have formed organizations and groups and very selflessly give of themselves to try to make other people's lives better. It makes you feel good about, about humanity when, when, when you come across exceptional people like that. Oh, the community of people that are supporting Parkinson's is amazing uh, from, all, from all sides, whether it's research, whether it's support groups, whether it's you know, just you know, um, you know, people, people in the community that, uh, that are just willing to help out, They're just send a nice note through an email because they heard my podcast. You know, people, people are good, um, and I've, I learn that uh, more and more each day. Yeah. As, as far as your, uh, your, your career is concerned, your work is concerned, I mean, you can continue, continue to do that, you can continue to be an intimidating program director, can you not? <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> Uh, for as long as I can be, I know the course has been really great to me and yeah. supportive. And, you know, uh, my handwriting is one of the things that is really uh, failing me these days, where it's, and it happens to a lot of people with Parkinson's, where your handwriting gets so small and illegible. Like, I'll be taking notes during a meeting, I'll get back to my desk, and I can't read them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're looking at options for, you know, speech-to-text technology, and because typing can be difficult as well. Uh, and maybe record the meetings with audio, and you know, just we're just finding new ways to do it. You know, for now, uh, it's you know full steam ahead, and we'll we'll see uh, we'll see what the future brings when the future arrives. You know, uh, uh, as you speak of this, I I'm thinking of the people that you're you're helping, people who might not feel comfortable talking to anybody about what's happening to them or explaining anything that's happening to them because they don't know what the response is going to be. They don't know what the reaction is going to be. They don't know if they'll be isolated from their usual community of friends and associates. Are, are, you, are you hearing from folks who, who are living with Parkinson's who are, uh, are corresponding with you? Absolutely. Not even just Parkinson's. A lot of different diseases. I had a guy uh, call me the other day. Uh, he's been suffering from MS for the last 10 years and hasn't told but maybe four people. Mm-hmm. And he's like, how'd you do it? Well, what was the trigger? You know, and, and what I told him and what I tell everybody is like, uh, I, I was in a dark place for the first six months. And then I realized that uh, if, if people need to tell their stories uh, in order for there to be a possibility for research and a cure, and I'm a storyteller and I have radio stations and TV stations and websites that I can distribute my story to. And if I'm not willing to tell my story, how can I expect anybody else to tell their story? Exactly. Um, and so, um, and what I found is the support and the reaction is so positive that I am fueled by the energy of the people that are that are reading uh, the stories, that are watching the stories on globalnews.ca, that are listening to the podcast when life gives you Parkinson's. It's coming back at me tenfold, uh, and it's just lifting me up uh, each day, and it's just it's it's wonderful. How do you know what you're, do you know what you're going to say when you sit down? I have to ask you the broadcaster's question. When you sit down and you're doing the podcast, you're recording the podcast, do you know what you're going to say before you get in? Or does it just flow um, based on, I don't know, how you feel that particular moment? Well, you know, this is a different kind of podcast. Um, it's, it's really documentary style. So I'm actually rolling tapes throughout my life. Okay. 
uh, and then we come back into the editing room and chop it up. And then um, Nikki Reitmeyer is my co-host, and she gets to ask the, the questions that everybody's afraid to ask or the silly questions or the stupid questions. Um, and uh, so then we, we play off the tape a little bit. We have a rough, rough game plan. And, you know, I was a, a news anchor and a news reporter, so I always had a script. I, you know, I'm, I don't have the talents of Roy Green where you can just ad lib for four hours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that works. <laughs> That's when you hear from the program director. Don't you ever prepare? Um, right. Larry, I, I ask you some of these questions because uh, I, I've shared with you that I had a major heart issue uh, 18 years ago. And and one of the, as odd as it may sound, one of the most difficult things for me to come to grips with personally is how am I going to tell people about this? I know it doesn't make any sense to the to the to the average person. Why, why wouldn't you have Why would you have trouble talking about it? But that's what troubled me. That's what concerned me. How am I going to do this? Vulnerability is one of the scariest things you can do in your life. Yeah, making yourself it is. vulnerable. It is. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, when I when I decided to tell my bosses that I have a degenerative brain disease, you know, that's yeah. that's not really what they're looking for in a, a, a corporate leader. I am. Uh, I'm proud to know you, uh, at least by phone. I hope we we meet. I certainly want to get out to Vancouver again. We will, uh, and and I wish you only the very very best, you and your family. And uh, congratulations. I mean that for taking on what you've taken on, and that is to share your personal journey with people who will all benefit from it. And at, at some time in their lives, what you're doing now, even if it isn't today, I'm sure for many it'll be today. But at some point in their lives. What you're doing now will affect them and very positively and very personally. When Life Gives You Parkinson's, globalnews.ca. It's also on uh, Chorus Radio and the and uh, on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. God bless you. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. And I encourage people to check out Parkinson Canada, too, if they're looking for information on Parkinson's because it's a tremendous resource. Okay. Talk to you soon, Larry. Great. Thanks. Larry Gifford, CKNW Program Director. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.